Well, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4? And we were going to be reading verses 14 to 20 to 30. Luke chapter 4. That's found on page 1018. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1018. Luke chapter 4. And we invite any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, if they would like to go to Children's Church through the door over here by the piano. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And before we dig into the Bible, just leave that open in your laps and then I'll, let's pray for a moment and then we'll dig into the text. Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning because you are our Savior. We love you. We thank you that you are called in Scripture both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. That you are both our strong defender and Savior, but you're also the one who gave up yourself on the cross so that we could be saved. We worship you. We are your people, called by your name. We thank you, Jesus, that you're here among us right now. Lord, we ask your blessing on your people this morning as they hear your word. We pray, Lord, for the world around us. We know this is a sinful and broken world, a hurting world. Lord, we pray for the people of France as they go through incredible uh, riots and turmoil. We pray, Lord, that that as that nation is shaken, that they might turn back to Christ. Lord, we pray for the people recovering from the uh, hurricanes in Pakistan and those areas. We pray, Jesus, that you would shake their souls as well and call them to see the light of Jesus. Help those uh, who are Muslims to understand that Jesus was more than just a prophet, that he was the very Son of God, sacrificed for our sins and risen again. Lord, we pray for this area, that, uh, that you would continue to work here on the south shore of Boston. We pray for our country and for New England, that you might revive us and renew us. Lord, we pray for this nation, that you might uh, reveal uh, yourself to this country. God, we feel this nation drifts further and further from its foundations, further and further from its moorings, that, Lord, we're, we're doing well economically as a country, but, Lord, spiritually and morally, we sense this great abandonment of the principles on which we are founded. And so, Lord, we pray for our nation that you might revive your church in America, that you might renew your church in New England, that we might have a witness. God, we pray for this church in particular this morning, that you would pour out your Spirit on these people seated here. Our God, we don't want to just come to church and go through the motions and sing some familiar hymns and smile and leave. Lord, we want to hear from the living God. We want God to speak into our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study your Word this morning, that you would do that. Lord, we think of people in this church who are hurting, who are grieving. There are many, Lord, in our midst who are just going through the challenges of life. We pray that you'd be with them. Lord, I pray for those who grieve lost loved ones in their life. Lord, I pray for Phil and Elliot, for Mark and Chris. Lord, be with those who are sick, who are struggling with physical ailments. Pray for Joan and Mary and Orville and Tony. Lord, be with Maurice. Be with Martin. Lord, be with all those who are uh, struggling physically and emotionally. God, strengthen your body here. And most of all, Lord, strengthen us so that we might be servants. We don't want to just sit in church absorbing, absorbing, Lord. We want to be people who are called into your mission of giving back and serving others. We know that to follow Christ is to be a servant. 
So Lord, help us to be servants. Help us to see our task as Christians as taking the gospel of Jesus in word and action to the world around us. So now be with us as we study your word. We want to hear from you. We pray this all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Let me read the story, and then we'll study it together. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I remember the uh, first time my parents got to meet the woman who was going to be my wife in person. Uh, I had met my uh, wife at the, near the end of our freshman year at Wheaton College uh, it was our last month there, and we met each other. And I know this, is, this sickens people, but it, it was one of those things where literally within like two dates, we knew that we were going to get married. And we just, you know, we just sort of knew, and it was love at first sight, and that was it. And it was over. You know, by the end of the first month, we were telling each other we loved each other. I mean, it was just whoosh, straight ahead. And uh, we were married before we got out of college. It was just one of those uh, wonderful things. But anyway, then we, so we fall in love, and then we have to go off for summer break. And I, I knew it was going to be a long summer so without her there. So I asked my parents if we could have her come out and stay with my family for a week just to get to know my family. And, and you know, it's, it, that's an exciting moment because, you know, it's one thing to tell your parents about some person and to tell them stories and to show them pictures or read them snippets of a letter, you know, that she wrote. I mean, selected snippets. Uh, and then <laughs> it, it's another thing altogether for them to meet in person. And I, I still have the, the picture in my mind. My mom works in a bank, and we, uh, I picked up my, sis, uh, my, my, uh, my wife that morning. For, she was to be my wife from the airport, brought her there for lunch to meet my parents, and we all met outside of the bank with my mom and my dad. And we were just all kind of standing there like, you know, here she is, here they are. And, you know, it was just this kind of, you know, exciting moment. 
and, and in a way, as I look at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, I, I feel like it's this one of these, okay, here he is kind of moments. We are being introduced to the person of Jesus in his public ministry, finally in the Gospel of Luke. Now, now we've seen Jesus already, of course. We've been, you know, what do you mean? We've been studying about him. Yeah, but you know, it was kind of his infancy and his childhood was chapters 1 and 2. Then chapter 3, he was baptized. We didn't say anything there. It's, it's more like what was said about him. And then he goes off in the wilderness and he's tempted. And we get a little bit more perspective into him. But, but we still haven't seen the Jesus that we primarily know and we think of, which is Jesus during his public ministry. The act of Jesus who's healing and who's teaching and who ultimately dies on the cross and is raised. And so this is finally in, in Luke. I, this is where we kind of get to the, the major part of the gospel story. And so in a sense, I feel like it's this introduction. Luke wants us to meet Jesus as he was in his ministry. Um, and, and so this is really um, an important story. It's not just another story from the, a day in the life of Jesus in his ministry. This is in many ways kind of a, a summary story. This is a paradigm story. Uh, Luke wants us to get a sense of who Jesus was, sort of in toto. And so he gives us this representative text to tell us who Jesus was. And then from here we're going to see themes that are in this story running throughout the rest of the Gospel. So this is an important text. And specifically, I think in this story, there are at least three things that we learn about who Jesus was. There are three dimensions of Jesus that come out of this story, that give us an insight. And, and these three themes, like I said, will run throughout the Gospel of Luke. So let's just jump into the story and we'll pick out these three things about Christ as we go along. It says in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised Him. So here we have uh, Jesus He's left Galilee. You know, if you think of Israel, if you can think of a map of Israel, up here in the, the northern part of Israel is the Sea of Galilee. Then the Jordan River runs down. Here's the Dead Sea down here. And Jesus is up here in Nazareth, is, is in the region of Galilee. John the Baptist was down the Jordan River baptizing somewhere. So Jesus travels down, gets baptized with all the crowds, goes out into the, the wilderness of Judea, and is tempted by the devil for 40 days. So he's been gone, what, maybe coming up on two months? And then he comes back... And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about him. He left as just an, you know, another guy, and, and he comes back and, have you heard of Jesus? Oh, I heard Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Jesus, from who? From Nazareth. Really, where? And you know, everyone's talking about him. He, I heard he does miracles. Miracles? What? And you know, just the whole place is a buzz. So, like, what's the difference? You know, he leaves, and kind of a nobody in terms of what the world sees, and he comes back, and now everyone's got to talk about this guy. And I think the difference is right there in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ receives the Spirit at His baptism and, and He's empowered. Was He God the Son before in human flesh? Yes. But now it's time for His earthly ministry. And so as a, a person, as a human, uh, a God in human flesh, He is empowered by the Spirit in a sense, as we are. You know, the comparison is not totally there because he's different. And yet he's one of us. And so he receives power from the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to advance the kingdom of God. He's empowered. And now it's like, whoa, who, who is this fellow? Now we've been uh, prepped about this in Luke. We've seen the Holy Spirit as a theme already in Luke. Remember when uh, the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby? Mary's like, what? 
<laughs> I'm not even married. I'm a virgin. How can this be? And what does the angel say? The Holy Spirit will hover over you and the power of God will come upon you and you will conceive the Messiah. And then Mary runs off to visit her cousin Elizabeth and she walks in the door and Elizabeth, it says, is filled with the Holy Spirit and she says, you know, in, in, another, in essence, the Messiah is here. My Lord is here. And then when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove. And then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And remember, that was by the Spirit too. If you, in fact, look back at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Jesus' temptation was not some random kind of mugging where he just suddenly gets attacked by the devil. I mean, this was all part of the Spirit's plan. And so now when we come to chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit, we're kind of ready for this as readers. We know that Christ is coming with the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And then notice uh, when we get to the Nazareth story, which is verses 16 and following, again, the emphasis is upon the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 16. It says he went to Nazareth. Of course, that's where Jesus grew up, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So Jesus is a good, observant Jew. He goes to uh, synagogue every Sabbath day. It's probably the synagogue he went to growing up. Uh, archaeologists tell us that Nazareth at this time may have been a town of, you know, four, five, six hundred people. So it's a small town. You know how small towns are. Everyone knows everybody. Everyone knows everyone's business. So chances are he's like, oh, here's Jesus. And now he's back and something's different. So he goes maybe to a synagogue that he grew up in, that he'd gone to his whole life. But now something's different. He stands up to read, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handing to him. Now, just so you get a sense of synagogue worship. Uh, in fact, a lot of the worship we have in church today is still based upon the synagogue. Uh, people sat in seats. They, they sat as a congregation. Uh, and then in the front, or, or depending on how the room was oriented, uh, th- there would be a raised platform. Uh, it's called the Bema. And on this platform would be the people who lead the service. And there would also be the, the Torah scroll. And so what would happen is the tor- uh, at the beginning of the service, people would say the Shema together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they would say some prayers. There would be some benedictions. And then there would be time for reading of Scripture. And the attendant would take the, the Torah scroll down and they would read Torah. And then they would read from the prophets. And after they read from the prophets, then somebody would give a message. Now, in, in a Jewish synagogue in those days, anybody could preach. Uh, any man could preach. But typically the person who preached was someone who was respected in the town, a leader of the synagogue, maybe someone who had had some training, uh, or a visiting rabbi. That's how the Apostle Paul got to preach in so many places, because he'd show up in the synagogue on the Sabbath and say, oh, visiting rabbi. You know, and probably the guy who had to give the message was like, great, you know, we've got a rabbi here. <laughs> he got to, I got to save it for next week. So, so then, you know, and so that's it. Jesus comes back, and so this is it. They, they unroll the scroll. He reads from the prophet, which happens to be Isaiah, and, and they unroll the scroll. And, and remember, in those days, in those scrolls, they didn't have verses and chapters and page numbers like we do. Christ just knew the word. He knew the scriptures. And as they're unrolling it, he's reading and he says, stop. And that's the part he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach 
good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's my kind of sermon. Read a prophecy and say, guess what? It just came fulfilled. <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Whew, that's amazing. That's the sermon, basically. It's, it's happening right now. But notice how the prophecy begins, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. So again, it's the presence of the Spirit. So this is the first thing we learn about the ministry of Jesus. Point number one is that Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. What was the source of his ministry? It was through the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is a major theme in Luke as we studied. It's it's a major theme in Acts as well. You go to the book of Acts, which as we know is Luke volume 2, and there it's all about the Holy Spirit. Jesus performs uh, his work uh, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, and then he ascends to heaven after his resurrection, and then what happens in Acts? He pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. And now the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God moves forward through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the time of, of the Messiah has come. That's the whole point of this. Uh, the Messiah in the book of uh, Isaiah is often marked as one who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? One of the answers is he has the Holy Spirit. How do we know the Messianic age has begun? Because Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit, which is a mark of the, the age of the Messiah. And so it's begun. The Holy Spirit is here. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, empowers the church in the Gospel of Acts. In the Gospel of Acts, the church goes out and the Gospel goes forward. Why? Because it has the Spirit. And today, the Holy Spirit is in our hearts as Christians. Today, the Holy Spirit is in Christ's church. And the Gospel of Jesus continues to move forward today because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. I'm going to say something radical here about the Holy Spirit. This may scandalize some of you. You may be in shock. But I just need to say it and let you sort of just deal with it. Uh, This is what I need to say. Okay, ready for this? The Holy Spirit is real. I know, I know. It's it's crazy. It's shocking. I know, for us Baptists especially. Maybe you've heard of the Baptist Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Um, The Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is real. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is in the church. And I emphasize that because our tendency, my tendency, is to believe in the power of man and to try to accomplish God's work through human power and human means. Right? What is it that we believe in? Well, we believe in plans. We believe in programs. I believe in that best-selling book that was used in that church because, boy, that's a mega church, and maybe if it grew that church, it'll grow this church. And you know, I, I believe in this technique and that strategy. And most of all, we believe in money. That's how you get things done. How do you get things done in this world? You need money. And so ultimately, we worship money. But that's not how God's kingdom moves forward. Well, I mean, you need those things. God uses those things, or He doesn't. But the one thing we do need is the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do a lot without the Holy Spirit. The thing is, it just doesn't last. And it's not eternal, and no one is truly changed. It's only through God's Spirit that anything happens. 
Uh, you know, we have this goal as a church. We want to see the south shore of Boston reached with the gospel of Jesus. We want to see new churches planted around the south shore. We want to see dead churches revived. We want to see living churches grow and flourish. How's that going to happen? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, especially mediated through prayer and the preaching of the word. And, and so that's how it's going to happen, through the Spirit's power. There's people in, that you have in your lives, that you love, that you've been trying to reach with the gospel. How are they ever going to come to Christ? Is there some little turn of phrase that you can use in a conversation and you'll say it, then they'll suddenly go, oh, that was so clever. Now I will become a Christian. No, 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 no. The only way they're going to become a Christian is the same way that I became a Christian, you became a Christian, which was by the power of the Holy Spirit. God just had to break through all of my Jeremy nonsense and, and, and capture me for himself. That's how a conversion happens, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so as a church, as Christians, you know, we have what we need. God has given us a gift, the one gift that we need, the Holy Spirit. And, and I'll tell you, you don't have to be Pentecostal or charismatic to be all fired up about the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible gift given to every Christian at their conversion. And in fact, it's by the Spirit that we are converted. And so we have the Spirit living inside of us. And we need to rely on the Spirit to see God's kingdom move forward. Uh, It's said of um, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, 19th century British uh, preacher, who was an amazing preacher. I mean, thousands pressed in to hear this man preach. Uh, his sermons are, I still read his sermons today. They're just so good. They're, they're so amazing. He's called the Prince of Preachers. But you know, where was his power? It was in prayer, the Word, and the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Spurgeon uh, says that sometimes when he would walk up to the pulpit to preach, and, and he thought about the great responsibility of preaching, every step he would take up to the pulpit, he would say to himself quietly, I believe in the Holy Ghost. 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 And you come and then you preach. I'll tell you what, some of us need to start doing that. Maybe when you go to work tomorrow morning, walking in that office, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Maybe when you go to school tomorrow and you're walking down the hallway with your backpack on, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Because you know how your school is. You know how those people at work are. And how in the world are you ever going to get through there? How is God's work ever going to happen there? One answer, power of the Holy Spirit. Some of us, let's be honest, some of us need to go home today to our houses, to our families. And some of us has to walk in our houses this afternoon saying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Because it's only through God's power that his kingdom moves forward. And that is how God worked through Christ. That is how he works through his church then. That's how he works today. Through the power of the Spirit, which comes through prayer and the Word of God, which is the means by which the Spirit operates. But I think in this quote from Isaiah 61, there's another dimension of Jesus' ministry. So the first thing is the source of Jesus' ministry, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is the nature of Jesus' ministry. By nature, I mean, you know, what is it that Jesus actually came to do? Right? What, what is it? I mean, we know he has the power of the Spirit, but to do what? Did Jesus just come to heal sick people? Was he sort of like a glorified doctor? Uh, did Jesus come to help the poor by introducing socialism and overthrowing capitalism? You know, I mean, like, you're not being outrageous here, but like, what? What did he come to do? And I think here in Isaiah 61, we not only have the source of Jesus' ministry, we also have the nature of it. And uh, you've read it, verses 18 and 19. 
It's a ministry of proclamation, good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. And if I were to pick one word in that quotation from Isaiah to summarize the nature of Jesus' ministry, I would probably pick the word release or freedom. That seems to be the word that kind of encapsulates and and summarizes this passage. In fact, the word occurs twice in Greek. Uh, You can't really see it in English, but in Greek, the word freedom and the word release is the exact same Greek word. Uh, So, so, you know, whenever a word is repeated in a text, that's often the main point of the text. So so I think that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring freedom. And we saw that in his ministry. He went to the poor. Jesus was often found among those who were at the outskirts of society, proclaiming freedom to them. He brought freedom to people who were uh, in disease and and illness. He freed them from their illness. He freed people who were demonically possessed. Uh, He he freed people who were under the oppression of the false religious teaching of the Pharisees. He went around freeing people from those things. He freed people from death. He raised some people from the dead. But most importantly, most importantly, Jesus came to free us from our sins. That's what it's all about. And all of those other manifestations of bondage are all simply manifestations of sin. I mean, why are people sick? Why is there poverty in the world? Why is the world broken? It's because of sin. It's because fundamentally, we are all rebels against God. And fundamentally, we all say to God, you know, God, thank you very much, but I got it. (laughs) That's the essence of sin. I got it, okay? I'll call you if I need you, uh, but, you know, I'll do it my way, my time, my rules. I'm not your stuffy morality, God. And and we think that's freedom, because we think that means I'm free, therefore I get to do what I want. What we don't realize is that it's bondage. Sin always brings a, a stifling, suffocating bondage that always leads to death. And so it's from sin that Jesus came to free us. Real freedom is freedom from sin. That's real freedom. Real freedom is moral and spiritual in nature, not political or economic or educational. Freedom is, that's what real freedom is all about. I was reading, uh, last week I told you about this book, I just finished um, In Prison for Christ. It's a story um, about a pastor, Christo Kulichev, who was a Bulgarian pastor who was uh, thrown in prison for three years by the communists for his religious beliefs in the uh, early 90s. And it's, it's a fascinating story of how he sort of endured there. But he talks about freedom. He was in prison and he had a lot of time to think about what freedom really is. Let me just read you a section from his book. He says, As a Christian pastor, I spent hours in prison reflecting on the nature of freedom. Losing my social and political freedom made me realize that the most precious kind of freedom is spiritual. He said, Freedom for most prisoners meant the ability to move without restrictions, to go where they like, to eat and drink with friends and family. He said, Some define freedom as a life without restrictions. I came to see very quickly how superficial and shallow such a definition of freedom was. And this is interesting. Get this. He says, ironically, I observed that those who had led a lawless life were the ones who found prison the hardest. Accustomed to controlling their lives, they were now unable to control even the most personal aspects of their daily routine. Once enslaved to sin and vices, they found it hard to be confined and unable to fill the desires of the flesh. However, Christo found a different kind of freedom. He said, prison taught me there was something more precious than freedom of movement. More precious was spiritual liberty. Because I had freedom of spirit, he said, I could rejoice in the thought that God was present even while in the ugly bowels of a dank prison. I enjoyed a feeling of well-being, of shalom, of inner peace. 
Then he says this, Neither the wardens nor my fellow inmates could understand this inner peace. For as Paul wrote, it flows from the deep things of God. It flows from the Holy Spirit. That's real freedom. (laughs) You can be in prison, but if you have Christ, you're free. And conversely, you can be attractive, you can be athletic, uh, in shape, you can have money, good job, you know, 8,000 square foot mansion overlooking the ocean. You can have a good car. You can have a beautiful spouse, kids, the whole nine yards. But if you don't have Christ, you are enslaved and you are on your way down eternally. Do you understand that? And in fact, my experience, uh, limited as it is in pastoral ministry, has often been that people who seem to have the most perfect fronts and facades are often the ones who experience the most decay on the inside, but they just haven't dealt with it. Because sin is what enslaves us, but real freedom comes with Christ. I was exchanging emails this last week with someone who's just become a Christian. I love talking to people who've just finally gotten it. Because it's, like it's like holding that baby up here. You know, it's like, oh, it's so great. You talk to someone who's just become a Christian, and one of the things this person said was, I'm free. I'm free. I mean, that's what you feel when you become a Christian. I never had this conversation with a person. I didn't prime them to say that. It just comes out of your heart. I'm free. You just feel it. You know it. It's a wonderful thing. And then I think it's better. It's not just like when you become a Christian, you're free from sin and, and its penalty and its power. But then as you grow as a Christian, that freedom just kind of expands and widens in your life. You know, a lot of people have become Christians and then they, they start to realize, wow, I've got a lot of junk from my family. <laughs> you know? There's a lot of sinful ideas and sinful habits and sinful patterns that I picked up from my family and I've adopted the same things. I'm just as guilty. And so we start, you know, God, you know, clean out that junk and establish new patterns in my life that are godly and pleasing to you. That takes time. That's a process. Um, Christians start to forgive. That's a freedom. It's a freedom to be able to forgive other people because Jesus has freely forgiven me. I can freely forgive you. And as a Christian, pastor, I have seen, I have seen husbands and wives forgive each other even for infidelities and put marriages back together. I've even seen people begin to find some release and freedom even from abuse. Because Jesus brings freedom. The Holy Spirit is real. And then finally, what's it all for? Why are we being freed as Christians? The answer is we're being freed to serve others. And this is the real essence of freedom. Why does God give us freedom in Christ? It's to serve others. The diabolical, sinful, satanic view of freedom is that freedom is for me. Freedom is to do what I want with no one telling me what to do. And some of us never leave that kind of adolescent understanding of freedom. Freedom's about nobody telling me how to live. Like, oh, man. (laughs) We're 50, 60 years old and we still think of freedom that way. No, no. Freedom is for others, not for yourself. The whole purpose of freedom is so that I can be poured out to serve you. So often people come into the church saying, well, you know, what can this church do for me? You know, I, I have this issue, this issue, this need, that need. You know, what's it got for me? What's it got for my family? You know, come on, show me what you got, church. And maybe if I like it, you know, maybe I'll check. And, and, and I understand there's, to that, and there's, there's a degree of that's understandable. You have to check out a church and see if it's a good fit. But, but I'm worried about this kind of consumeristic mentality that I fall into, we all fall into, where it's always about, well, what can you give me? But God has not called us to be consumers in the church. He's called us to be providers. 
Mature Christians serve. Mature Christians are being poured out just like Jesus. We are free to serve others, free to give our lives away. That is real freedom. And that's what Jesus has come to bring. I don't know what your experience of Christianity has been. Maybe you grew up in churches and just couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> Maybe your parents put you through some kind of religious schooling when you were growing up and that's just left such a bad taste in your mouth. I, I don't know. Maybe you've been in some churches and seen some people acting in ways that are not consistent with Christianity and it's just turned you off to the hypocrisy and all that. I don't know what your experience of Christianity has been, but I do know this. Unless you've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, and unless you've experienced the freedom and freedom from sin that that brings, you have yet to taste authentic Christianity. Real Christianity is a living relationship with Jesus through the power of the Spirit and His Word where I am free to serve Christ and to serve others. That is the real thing. Do not settle for substitutes because they'll only make you sick in the end. And that brings us to the third aspect and final aspect of Jesus' ministry. The source, the Holy Spirit. The nature of it is freedom. And then finally, the response. And that's important. And by response, I mean our response. Jesus' ministry gets in our face and demands a response from us. Uh, You can't just say, oh, that's nice, Jesus. No, no, no. He makes such radical claims. He does such radical things that you kind of have to deal with him one way or the other. He he sort of forces us to respond in some way. And how did the people in that day respond? Well, uh, it was mixed. That's how it always is. It's mixed. Usually the mixture is a few believe and most turn away. Unfortunately, that's usually the mixture. Um, And notice that's what happens here. Look at verse 22. Notice the mixed response. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. So you have kind of two responses here. On the one hand, you know, people, some people are saying, wow, this guy's a great teacher. I'll tell you what, you know, we always hear the same old people droning on and then this guy comes, wow, it's engaging, it's exciting. No one teaches like this. Wow, this is, you know, I really like this. This is wonderful. I can't believe what he's saying. I mean, he grew up here. I never knew he was like this. So, so on the one hand, they're amazed at his teaching in some ways. But on the other hand, there's also this kind of skeptical side where it's like, isn't this just Joseph's son? No, they knew it was Joseph's son. They're not asking, is that Joseph's son? I mean, the, the point is like, who does he think he is? He reads from Isaiah about the Messiah and then he says it's fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, this guy, he leaves, you know, for two months. He comes back, he's, he's infected with megalomania. The guy suddenly thinks he's somebody, he thinks he's the Messiah. He's got a Christ complex, you know, he's a savior complex. You know, what's, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? So, you know, what's interesting is, basically the people are saying about him the exact same thing that people say about him today. I think he's a good teacher, but I don't believe he's the Son of God. That's just what people say today. And Jesus knows that. He knows their attitude. And so he kind of gets in their face in these verses. Verse 22, Surely you'll quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. 
in other words, you know, he knows that they want some proof. He's making these big claims about being the Messiah. Well, they want some proof. Do a miracle here like he did other places. And, you know, he's not going to do it. So he tells them, verses 24 to 27, the Elijah-Elisha thing. You know, Elijah was in Israel, but he ministered to someone outside of Israel. Elisha was in Israel, but he ministered to someone outside of Israel. And the whole point is, I'm like Elijah. I'm like Elisha. You're like the unbelieving, idolatrous Israelites, and I'm going to go elsewhere with my ministry. And they, they picked up on this. It was, this was not that hard to interpret what he was saying. And so here we have this foreshadowing of the passion of Christ, I think. All the people in the synagogue were furious. When they heard this, they got up. They drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill in which it was built in order to throw him down a cliff. Uh, we know in Nazareth, there's a, uh, on the west side of town, there's a 30 to 40 foot limestone cliff. Maybe that was the cliff. We don't know. A lot of cliffs around there, a lot of hills. So they've taken him out. They're going to toss him down it and try to kill him. But just like on the day of resurrection, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What will you and I do with Jesus? How will we respond? Will we trust in him as our Savior or will we say, ah, he's just the son of Joseph. It's just some guy. That's the challenge before us. And unfortunately, a lot of people go the second route and they say, eh, I'm going to live my life. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Or will we come to Jim and say, yes, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. Can you change me? Pastor Kulichev talks about one man that he met in prison who did turn to Christ. Uh, the guy's name was Charlie. And Charlie uh, had been in prison for about four years. And uh, during that time in prison, his 18-year-old daughter tragically died. And he was very angry and obviously frustrated because he couldn't be there, couldn't do anything about it. And so the way he dealt with it is he just decided to blame his wife. Because if his wife had taken better care of his daughter, this wouldn't have happened. And in fact, he got so angry that he decided he was going to move out. And when he got out of prison, he wasn't going to live with her. He was going to get his own apartment. He was going to have his son come live with him and just divorce her. And just get, Because he was just so angry. She wanted to come visit him in the, the prison. And he's like, I, you cannot come. He shut the door to her. Um, and then Christo, you know, sort of heard about this. And Christo just gently started ministering to Charlie and started teaching him about the love of Christ and about who Jesus is. And the power of the Holy Spirit started breaking through all of that hard shell. You know, maybe, have you ever felt the Holy Spirit doing that? I, I did when I first became a Christian. It just was slowly but surely breaking through my hard shell. And it was getting closer and closer. You know, I could hear the drilling going on through the wall. Like, what's that sound? You know, and it getting louder and louder. And suddenly it breaks through and the light comes in. I'm like, wow, you know, there's Christ. And Christ was just breaking through his wall. And, help, and Christo's helping him to see, you know, you can't blame this on your wife. This is hard for her too because you're in prison. You've got to forgive. You've got to find forgiveness in Christ. And eventually it started breaking through. So that finally when Christo left jail, Charlie said to him, hey, when you get out, call my wife for me. And then Christo got out, and eventually Charlie got out. And then one day, Charlie calls Christo. He says, can I come over to your house? He comes over with his wife, and, and they're together. And, and that's what Christ does. He forgives us. He frees us from our sins. And then that freedom and forgiveness just sort of spreading outward into others. That's how God's kingdom advances. And God invites you, and he invites me, and all of us, to to enter into the freedom of Christ. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray.
Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that You would fill us with the Holy Spirit in fresh measure. That Lord, we would be empowered by Your Spirit to be Your witnesses. Stretch out Your hand again, Lord, and do miraculous things. Open eyes that are blind and hearts that are closed. God, I pray that You would work in this church, starting with me, to make us a people who are free from sin, free from all those things that would keep us from living for You 100%. And God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know You, Jesus, that You would just keep drilling closer and closer through those hard walls. And may they even now begin to hear the sound of that Spirit's drill coming in and just start rejoicing that You, Lord, are coming to save them. God, I pray that everyone here would know Jesus, that they would know the freedom of Jesus. And and Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's maybe even raised in a church, but they've never experienced what You're talking about here in Your Bible, that they would begin to experience that power that comes through the Holy Ghost. So, Lord, bless your church. Bless this word to us. Use us this week. And ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.